This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning and welcome again, especially to those of you who are joining us for the first time. What if there is nothing? The poet Margaret Gibson asked herself as a child, and those of you who were here during the Poetry Festival last week, you, you heard this. She gave an interview in which she described standing on her porch as a child and just looking up at the stars and All of a sudden, the the question popped into her mind, what if there is nothing? And she said that she was stunned. Her mind stopped, and it was still and empty. But she couldn't stay there long because she was afraid. And so then she thought, well, that's ridiculous, because who's the one asking this? There must be something. And in this way, she reassured herself. And she said that using words, she reestablished presence, her presence, presence in general. But that liminal moment, that, that space in which she briefly did not know, I think is the space in which spiritual practice is born. <clears throat> what if I'm not who I think I am? What am I? Who am I? What is this life for? What is its purpose? Why am I here? And there is that koan that that every student working on koans at some point encounters. When the bell rings, why do you put on your robe? So in the morning, at the end of sitting, the, the the case is hit, a small case, a bell ringing in a way, and monastics put on their kesa, and those of us who have taken the precepts put on our rocks, so we put it on our heads, and then we put it on. And the question is, why? Why do you do that? Why do you do anything that you do in your life? There is a line in the Faith Mind poem that says, to return to the root is to find the meaning. But the root of what? The meaning of what? What is the root of the breath, for example? Knowing its root, we know its meaning, which is to say we know it for itself, not a description of it. We know its nature, we know its purpose, we know its effect, we know what it is. And in my last talk, I spoke of great faith, And Dorothy Day said that you really come to faith through the senses, that you come to it through uh, offering incense, lighting candles, offering your words in a chant, in a prayer. And it's interesting, she didn't say you come through it through your aspiration, through your belief in God or some higher purpose. You, You come to it through things, really, and the senses that perceive those things. That's the entry point. But of course, if we're paying attention, we realize that's not all there is. 
the senses intimate but cannot quite express there's something that we can't quite reach and so we have to go beyond them. And Gina Sharp, who was here recently, told a a story about when Lyndon Johnson was president, uh, Bill Moyers was his press secretary. And Johnson asked him at one point point to uh, lead the prayer before a meal. And so Moyers started, and after a while, Johnson said, Bill, speak up, we can't hear you. And Bill Moyers turned to him and said, excuse me, Mr. President, but I wasn't addressing you. And during Daito Roshi's funeral, one of the dedications said, in offering flowers, candlelight, and incense, we dedicate their merits with deepest gratitude to Muge Daito Daiosho. May his vows be fully realized. And I remember that stopping me when I read that. He's dead. How are his vows realized? Who is the liturgist speaking to when they're chanting those words? Who are they speaking about? Does something end when the body ends? I mean, clearly something ends. But then why do we say that? May his vows be fully realized. We say that, of course, of Shugen Roshi when he's not present. We chanted that this morning. But he's alive. That seems to make more sense. How are Daito Roshi's vows continuing to be realized? And every morning, we also did that this morning, we chanted in the show Saimyo Kichijo Dorani, the dedication for that, the absolute light, luminous throughout the whole universe, unfathomable excellence pervading everywhere. Whenever this devoted invocation is sent forth, it is perceived and subtly answered. Who perceives it? Who answers it? What is that luminous light? What is its source, its root? What is it for? And so first I spoke of of great faith, and now I want to speak of great doubt. You know, I've often wondered why when these three essentials or these three pillars of Zen are listed, why great doubt doesn't appear first? Because there really are great faith, great doubt, and great determination. And I've always thought, why isn't that great doubt comes first? And that really seems to be what gets the wheel rolling. And I thought, well, maybe it is because we are starting, certainly from a Buddhist perspective, we are starting with that original perfection, with a trust that we already have and are what we are seeking. And great doubt is what gets us going on the path to actually realize that, to make that real in our lives. And so it is that moment in our lives in which we stop and we think there has to be another way. We either look at ourselves or we look at the world and we think there has to be another way to do this. I don't know what it is, but I want to find it. Do I need to do anything? So maybe we pick up a book, we go online, we type Zen Monastery, we listen to a talk, and we ask ourselves, does this person know what's going on? Can they tell me? Can they show me? 
And I said, when I was speaking of faith, I said how Daidoroshi really made me feel like I could do this practice, that I could realize myself even when I doubted myself. But this wasn't some kind of special treatment he gave me. He did this with everyone who came sincerely looking for a path, who wanted to understand what this thing called life is. But he was also, when necessary, very good. I was going to say at creating doubt, but he wasn't creating it. He was just highlighting it. So when I was Shuso, when I was going through that three-month training where, where you, um, you're leading the, the Sangha through your example, your practice, and you become a senior, uh, he kept me stuck on the same koan for those three months. And I kept giving him answers, and he kept saying, no, 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 no. And I kept thinking, but I've seen this. And he just kept bringing me out. And I started doubting myself, and then I thought, well, maybe I haven't seen it. Maybe I don't have a clue. Maybe I've been practicing this whole time, but I haven't really, really done anything. And I actually, I got very depressed, actually. It was a very depressing thought. You know, what if all of this, I haven't really been doing it? I think that I have, but maybe I haven't. And I, and I got actually kind of desperate. And just before Sashin, just before the end, that last week of those three months, when I needed to, to work on another koan that I was going to present, he passed me on that, on that other one, that first one. And he passed me with an answer that I had already given at least a couple of times. And I said, but I said this months ago. And he said, oh, really? He just looked at me very innocent. Oh, really? He just rang me out. <laughs> I was furious. <laughs> Until I saw what he was doing. He was really saying, don't think you know. You know, you're going through this big, you know, rite of passage, and we make a big deal of it, and the ceremony at the end is the most uh, involved, the most dramatic ceremony that we do, almost the most dramatic that we do. He was really saying, you know, don't get cocky, because there's worlds you haven't seen. And it was exactly the right medicine for me at the time. I didn't like it. I hated it. But even then, afterwards, I could appreciate that that is what I needed. And it was what, what I needed. He wasn't like that with everyone. He was actually very discerning. With other people, he was very supportive, very affirming, very giving. With one of my Dharma brothers, the night before he was going to give his talk, he said, you haven't seen it. The poor guy stayed up all night rewriting his talk. That's what he needed. And he wasn't afraid of my discomfort, is the thing. I was. I was afraid. I was, I was uncomfortable with my unknowing. He wasn't. He wasn't afraid to leave me in that state of tension and let me figure it out. And it is a state so uncomfortable that you'll do anything to find release. I, was, um, I gave a, did a workshop yesterday um, speaking about the Four Noble Truths as a path to recovery. And I was saying that I really feel that any successful path to recovery really needs to take into account that discomfort, that tension. And that's not just for addicts, it's for all of us. You know, that, that moment, that gap, when we can't tolerate either our confusion, our not knowing, or we can't tolerate what we're feeling, what is arising in that moment. 
we cannot accept it. And if we can't tolerate that tension, then we will release it, usually in very painful, very harmful ways. And sometimes just by checking out, you know, not in such harmful ways, but just by checking out, by, by letting out steam. And spiritual practice is really demanding that we hold, that we learn to hold that doubt. Because that's the only thing, that's the only way that we will actually move through. And so how that release happens, if it's not resolution, it almost never leads to insight. It's entirely, it entirely depends on how that release happens, what we will see from it. <clears throat> and I watched this um, comedy show, Hannah Gadsby, an Australian comedian, has this show that is, that is getting quite a bit of, of attention, very uh, unusual comedy show. And she's really masterful at building this tension. And really, like all performers, she's using a medium, a medium of of performance, to tell a story, her story. And as she gets deeper and deeper into her routine, it becomes more and more uncomfortable, more and more pointed, more and more raw. And she's, she's telling what it was like for her to grow up as a lesbian in Tasmania, where homosexuality was a crime until 1997. So what it was like for her to grow up in this world, what it was like to grow up as a woman in a world that is, in many ways, made by and for men. And just when you think you can't take the tension anymore, she throws a a joke, and you laugh, and then you breathe again. And she keeps doing that as the show progresses, until she reaches a point where she says, that tension, she doesn't do it anymore. There's no relief. She leaves you with something, and she says, this tension, it's yours. I'm not going to help you with it. And that's the thing. No one can help you with it. And if they do, it's not real help. So I said, we have to be willing to hold that ourselves. We have to be willing to not know badly and to know badly. To really want to understand ourselves and the world. And so if every time things get difficult, things get hard, we pull back, we turn away, we break. We break that tension. And so we need all of our energy. I think so much of practice is learning how to be in that discomfort. Because, you know, those times when we, when we say to ourselves, and we all do, all of us, I don't want to deal with this. Whether it's this, this, or the world, this. I can't deal with this. And it's true. There are times when it is overwhelming. But staying there is like staying in an elevator stuck in between two floors. There's no life there. And so I think, well, what if I find something that I do want to deal with? I'll just start there. Something small that I do want to deal with. I do want to turn towards. Something to get the gears going. 
And what happens with practice is slowly your, I've said this many times, your tolerance for what you can and are willing to deal with hopefully increases. Not hopefully, hopefully you, you, you work towards allowing that to happen, to get larger. There's a story about an ascetic called Diganaka, whose nephew became a disciple of the Buddha. And Diganaka wanted to know what this teacher, who was largely unknown at the time, what the Buddha had to teach. And so he went to him and he said exactly that. What is your teaching? What are your doctrines? Because really, for my part, it's it's kind of odd how he asked the question, what is your teaching? What are your doctrines? Because for my part, I don't believe in any teaching. I don't subscribe to any doctrines. And the Buddha says to him, oh, well, okay. So do you subscribe to your doctrine of no doctrines? Do you believe in your teaching of no teaching? And the Ganaka says, oh, well, what I believe doesn't matter. Whether I believe or I don't believe, that's not important. And the Buddha says, really, when you're caught in doctrines, you lose all of your freedom. And he says, my teaching is not a doctrine or a philosophy. It is not the result of discursive thought or mental conjecture. Those two are like ants crawling around the rim of a bowl. They never get anywhere. Right? So if you're zazen, if you spend your zazen thinking, following your discursive thoughts, it is like an ant crawling around the rim of a bowl. You never get anywhere. He says again, my teaching is not a philosophy. It is the result of direct experience, which means you can confirm it through your own experience too. I teach that all things are impermanent and without a separate self. I teach that all things depend on all other things to arise, develop, and pass away. My goal is not to explain the universe, but to help guide others to have a direct experience of reality. Words cannot describe reality. Only direct experience allows us to see the true face of reality. And Diganaka gets it. But then he says, but what if someone does see your teaching as a doctrine? And the Buddha gives that famous analogy, two analogies, in fact, of the finger pointing at the moon and of the person carrying a raft, a person taking a raft to carry them to the other shore, the shore of enlightenment. He says, but you don't put the raft on your back and then carry it around. Just as the finger is not the moon, it only points at it. Although from a perspective, the finger is, in fact, the moon. But the raft is for crossing over. It's not for carrying it on your back. But isn't this exactly what we do? We carry our beliefs, our biases, our opinions about the world. What we, what others should be. And although the raft is heavy, and it is certainly uncomfortable, it is also comforting. That, that weight gives us a sense of presence, of solidity. But the raft doesn't address the very thing that brought us to practice. We have to address that ourselves. Why am I doing this? What is this for? How is it that people go around and pick up random things and carry them about? Like the porter who heaves market baskets from stall to stall as they keep filling up. 
and he lugs his burden and never asks, Sir, for whom is this feast? How is it that one just stands here, like that shepherd, so exposed to the energies of the universe, so integral to the streaming events of space, that simply leaning against a tree in the landscape gives him his destiny? He need do nothing more. And yet he lacks in his restless gaze the tranquil solace of the herd, has nothing but world, world each time he looks up, world in each downward glance. This is the second poem of Rilke's uh, Spanish trilogy. And we can certainly pick up random things and lug them about without asking why. We can certainly, and we do, pick up our thoughts and our habits and our feelings and carry them from one place to another without trying to understand what led to them or what they produce. So you could say that zazen is very much just like putting down that basket, putting down that weight, and actually looking at it. What is its root? What is its purpose? What is its nature directly? Because just carrying you know, the weight around from one place to the next is not a very satisfying way to live, but it also doesn't lead to harmony. And uh, Zuiko uh, gave to those of us in the, uh, the planning group for the, our Beyond Fear of Differences work um, so a podcast, a conversation between Sharon Salzberg and Angel Kyoto Williams, and she took an excerpt pr- from it, in which Salzberg is distra- describing an experiment, a, a study, a meditation study that was uh, done at um, Northeast, Northeastern University in Boston. And so the subjects were asked to take a meditation course for eight weeks. And then they had a control group that wasn't doing any meditation. And then they were told after those eight weeks, they had to come to the lab for follow-up. But what the subjects didn't know was that the experiment was actually happening in the waiting room of the lab. And so they would come in. It was a single subject at a time. So they would come in, and there was a room, the waiting room, and it was filled with people There was only a few chairs in it. And every chair was occupied except for one. So that was the chair that the subject would take. And everybody else were um, actors who had been hired for the experiment, and they're all on their phones. So they're not looking up, they're not looking at each other. And then in walks into the room a person on crutches who's clearly in a lot of pain. And the question becomes, who will get up and give their chair? Now, of course, all of the actors are planted there, so they're not going to get up. So it really is, is up to the, the subject. And what they found was that the people who meditated, who did the course for those eight weeks, were more likely to get up and give their chair to the person uh, on crutches than those who didn't meditate. And so the conclusion was, well, so meditation leads to compassion. But then uh, Sharon Salzberg asks a very interesting question. She says, well, but did anybody wonder why there were so few chairs in the waiting room to begin with? And she said, this is systems thinking. And she stressed, you know, this doesn't just happen because you're meditating. That's, that's not a, a um, natural leap, necessarily. She said, it's a skill that needs to be learned and cultivated. 
And Kudo Williams said, it's actually not a skill, it's a necessity. So the person who's on crutches, most likely at some point will ask themselves, why are there so few chairs in this room? Because it affects them that there are so few chairs. The, the people who are already sitting comfortably in the chair, what is it to them? And she said, so what prompts someone, what prompts the one who's sitting comfortably in the chair to make that leap? Now, what do I have to care, uh, what do I have to do to care about immigrant children or black people being shot or the possible lo- loss of choice, you know, of what women can do with their bodies or marriage equality? If these things don't affect me directly, then what will propel me to act, if anything? And I was thinking about that, that light, you know, that absolute light. You know, light, you can think of it as, as, as um, light, you know, that, that um, giving clarity, giving, giving vision. But you also can, can think of it as heat, as fire. And Kyoto Williams is saying, you know, answering that question, you know, how do you make that leap, is the only thing that will lead to true change. And really, the answer is in the same place that the question is coming from. That's always true. And to me, that's the power of zazen, lies in, in our ability to hold and answer that question, right? to, to sit in that stillness and be steeped in that question. How do I care about this? And then get off the cushion and act. Then get off the chair and act. But what about this man that Rilke says, you know, simply by leaning against the tree, he has given his destiny. And it is true, in one sense, he doesn't need to do anything else. He never fails to cover the ground upon which he stands. But again, what does that actually mean? Very practically speaking, what does that mean? That right now, on our seats, we never fail to cover the ground upon which we sit. So then, what is that restless stare of his? He looks up and he sees world. He looks down and he sees world. You could say he looks inside, he sees world. He looks outside, he sees world. So where is that purity, then? Where is that perfection that we speak of? Why doesn't it seem to be manifesting? Is it manifesting? And Buddhism speaks of Buddha nature. And in one sense, it is the very nature of the mind itself. It's also that potential for Buddhahood that needs to be realized. But some teachings call it the working basis. We can call it the ground of being. And it is really essentially that undiluted consciousness, that light that pervades everywhere. And in one of the sutras, the Buddha says of this essential consciousness, this mind is luminous, but it is defiled by stains and taints that come from without. The mind itself is luminous and cleansed of stains and taints. So this really means that, you know, that our confusion, our delusion, 
our greed, our anger, and ignorance, they are produced. We have to create them. They're not inherent to the mind. That means that at the basis of everything, there is that bright, clear light, not produced by causes, not changed by conditions. It is not spoiled by confusion nor exalted by realization. It, is not, it does not know either confusion or liberation. And maybe that's a way of saying that that is the power of letting our actions stand on the ground of our practice. That this is acting, moving from stillness into the world, into activity. That this is looking up and seeing the world as this. As knowing myself integral to the streaming events of space. Because even if you shut yourself in a room, that's still true. I am still integral to the streaming events of space. I'm still shaping that very space. A rabbi would always tell his students, pray well and sincerely, placing the prayers on your hearts. And his students would ask him, well, why on our hearts and not in our hearts? And he said, you place them on your heart so that when your hearts break, the prayers can fall in. And this is what happens on the path. Your heart breaks over and over. But it's the only way that the light can get in, as someone once said. And the heart, the thing is, is an incredibly resilient organ. It is very much like Kuan Yin's head, you know, that she, she looks at the world, at all the beings that need to be saved. She saves them. She turns around. There they are again, and her head, her head, her head explodes. She's overwhelmed. And her head comes back. Amitabha gives her another head, and this happens again and again. And that's very much what happens with the heart. It shatters with a heart that's awake, or with a heart that's at least wants to be awake. It shatters and it comes together. And because it's so resilient, it can actually hold all those movements, all those fluctuations of the body and the mind, all those times that I don't want to deal and I am overwhelmed the times when I fall short, when I say I want to do something and I don't. Those times when I want to sit in my chair and I don't want to worry about anybody else. It can hold all of that. But because it's my heart and because it's beating, it won't let me stay there. And that perfection, it is the ground upon which we stand. Often it doesn't seem that way. It doesn't look that way. It doesn't feel that way. But it is still the ground upon which we stand. And every once in a while it shows itself in the most unexpected of ways. There's a a family who has a, a, a puppy who's giving birth to puppies. And they happen, it's all night, and then finally five puppies. Um, are born, and they immediately start suckling the mother, and they're all fine. The the, the couple that owns the the dog um, checks them, and they're all fine. And then, as the father is leaving, he realizes there's another puppy. He comes out a little bit later, and the mother immediately pushes him away. 
And when he gets close, she's, uh, he sees that the puppy has a cleft lip. And when he takes him to the vet, the vet says, you know, most likely it's going to die. The mother won't take him, and he can't really feed himself. And so most likely he's going to die. And the father decides that he doesn't want to let that happen, that he's going to take care of him. And so he takes him, and he starts feeding him with a, with a dropper, with a syringe. And he does that day and night for 10 days, and the puppy survives. And slowly, you know, he learns how to eat soft food. And before long, he's eating by himself. And so he's, he's fine. He's put an ad for all the other puppies, because he knows nobody will take this one. So he's put an ad, and all the puppies are almost sold. There's one left. And his neighbor across the, the street says, you know, I'm really interested in your puppies, for one of them for my, for my grandson. And he says, well, you know, they're all sold, but every once in a while somebody won't show up. They, they leave a deposit and will return them if eventually they change their mind. So if that happens, I'll let you know. And there's, so the other four are gone. The last uh, day, he says, nobody has come to pick up the fifth puppy. He calls her and says, I have it. You can come pick it up tonight. So she says, great, I'll be there with my grandson. And um, at 7 o'clock, they've sat down to dinner, and the guy who wanted the puppy before comes. He gives it to him. The puppy's gone. And he's hoping, he's praying that the, the grandmother won't come after all. But of course she does. Eight o'clock, the, the, there's a knock on the door, and there's the mother, the grandmother. And he says, you know, I am really sorry, but all the puppies were just sold. And her grandson is behind her. You can't really see him. And she turns to him and says, Jeffrey, I am so sorry they sold all the puppies. And then they start hearing a yelp. You know, the other puppy comes running out. And then the boy comes out, and he says, but look, that is my puppy. They left all of, they, they took all of them except the pretty one. And the father, the father looks, and he realizes the boy has a cleft lip. And the, and the father says, you know, these are very valuable puppies. And, and um, the, the boy says, well, I'll pay for it. He says, but you know, they're really, really valuable. And so the, the boy looks in all of his pockets and he brings out a dollar. And he says, is this enough? And the man says, yes. And he gives it to the man and he says, okay, so this is your puppy. You can take it home. You know, no matter how messed up we think we are, no matter how much we, we think we're struggling, that perfection never goes away. And we're actually never, ever alone. And if we can just remember that, then we can actually stay in that place of great doubt. Which is really, as I said, what begins the search. And then you have more and more the faith that gets confirmed through your actions and through your practice, that you can, in fact, realize yourself. And the two are kept together by great determination. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, 
or to join her email list, please visit vanessaswesaygoddard.org.